Welcome, folks, to the Andy Social Podcast. My name is Andy Dowling, and if we haven't been introduced before, I play bass in the Australian metal band Lord. And if you love a bit of heavy metal, you can go to lord.net.au. We've got a brand new website, thanks to Tim, who's put that all together. So cheers, Timothy. We have uh, streaming music, Spotify playlists, embedded video clips, lots of historical information, our whole back catalogs there. There's also our online store where you can buy T-shirts, hoodies, patches, CDs, all sorts of stuff's over there. So um, it's a great way to discover the band and get a taste of what we're all about. So if you go to lord.net.au... There's uh, plenty of links there to discover our music. In addition to playing in a heavy metal band, I also host the Self Startup Podcast, which is all about small business, self-employment, and freelancing. So depending on your interests and what you're doing, you could be starting your own business, you could have your own business, you could be quite happy in your job, but you just want to earn a little bit bit of extra money on the side. Whatever it might be, if any of that tickles your pickle, you can go to selfstarter.com.au or you can search for Self Starter in your preferred podcast player, maybe that podcast player that you're listening to this through right now, selfstarter.com.au. I interrupt this podcast for a very important announcement for the antisocial podcast listeners. Sorry, guys. I've got a heavy metal plug for you guys. Anybody that's interested in going to the upcoming Dragonland tour in September, uh, Dragonland are a power metal band from Sweden, and this is their first ever Australian tour, so pretty cool. Um, I have something very exclusive for you guys. I've got 25 signed laminates. They're going to be signed by the whole band, the whole Dragonland band. Dragonland Band, uh, and they're made available for anybody that's bought tickets for the upcoming uh, shows. So there's only 25, and the only other people that are going to have these laminates are going to be pretty much band and crew. So that's it. So 25, I'm not going to plug this anywhere else apart from in these episodes. So if you're interested, you can buy, well, first of all, you can buy tickets from stormridertouring.com.au slash tickets. And if you haven't got them already, if you do, and you want one of these passes, because there's only 25, email Stu from Stormrider Touring, uh, and the email address is stormriderfestival at live.com.au. Give him some proof that you bought the ticket and he will secure one of those exclusive signed laminates for you guys. Uh, if you don't know the dates, the guys are going to be in Australia from the 4th of September to the 8th of September. On the 4th, they're doing an in-store appearance at Utopia Records, just a bit of a meet and greet, so a great way to uh, meet the guys in person and maybe go and have a beer next door at the pub. Uh, from the from the 5th of September, Wednesday the 5th, they're playing The Basement in Canberra. The 6th, they're playing The Ballface Stag in Sydney. The 7th, they're playing Crowbar in Brisbane. And Saturday, the 8th of September, they're playing the Croxton Band Room in Melbourne. And I think um, that Melbourne show's got like this mammoth lineup. I'm pretty sure Black Majesty, I Fear, uh, Darker Half, Envenomed, and Espionage are playing that as well. So some big bloody heavy metal, melodic metal fest is happening on the 8th of uh, September. So if you're in Melbourne, definitely go to that and check that out. So uh, stormridertouring.com.au slash tickets if you haven't got your tickets yet. Um, email Stu over at stormriderfestival at live.com.au with proof of your purchase, and you'll get one of those laminates if you're in quick enough. Thank you very much, Stu, for the kind donation. How cool is that? I'll get some more of these uh, little goodies and exclusives for you guys in the future as well. This week's shout-out. Now, if you're new to the podcast, and I must say that each and every week, I'm getting more and more new listeners that are tuning in for the first time. So for any of you long-time listeners of the podcast, you're just going to have to cop this spiel. But... For anybody else, each and every week, I thank somebody that supports me in a range of different ways. And it could be through this podcast, it could be through Self Study, it could be through Lord, and it could be ways such as 
Things such as leaving me a review on Facebook, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, somewhere on the internet. It could be buying some merchandise through Lord or Andy Social, such as T-shirts or USB passes. I've got Andy Social patches now. Woohoo! Um, CDs, all sorts of stuff. Um, you could be shouting me a beer via the PayPal button over at andysocial.net. It could be some social media love, tagging, retweeting, sharing, liking love hearting, all that sort of rubbish. Um, it could be a message of encouragement. It could be a guest suggestion as well. Whatever it might be, small or big, it all helps me. It keeps me motivated. It keeps me inspired. It means a hell of a lot to me. So thank you so much for people that continue to do this for me. But each and every week, I thank one person. I highlight them, put them on public record, and just thank them for their support. This week's shout-out is for Liam Anthony, old mate, Liam from Brisbane. I've known Liam for so many years, and Liam's such a good guy. And Liam has donated a pile of Elkinwood CDs for upcoming giveaways for the Antisocial Podcast. Now, if you haven't heard of Elkinwood, Elkinwood are a progressive black folk metal band. And um, if you want to check out their music, you can go to elkinwood.bandcamp.com. You can search for Elkinwood on Facebook as well. That is E-L-K-E-N-W. Double O D. So thank you so much, Liam. Please send me a message. I will hook you up with something, um, something that's lying around the house. I'll have something, something fun, something cool, and I'll shoot that out to you in the post because we all love getting something in the mail. This week's episode is with Mark Brody of Jag Panzer. Fuck yes, I'm a huge Jag Panzer fan. I got into the band through the Thane to the Throne album, which came out in the year 2000, I believe. Which is, man, that's like. Oh, that's that's two decades ago, or almost, 18 years ago. Oh, man, time rolls on, hey? Anyway, far out. That that knocked me for six. Anyway, I've known Mark for almost as long, and um, I've known him from my early days as a wee young lad trolling the internet, primarily on the metalrules.com forums. And I know there's a few of you guys that listen to this podcast that uh, are from those uh, those good old forum days as well. So, Here's a trip down memory lane, folks. But um, look, I'm a big fan of Jag Panzer, have been for many years, and I'm a big Mark fan. I'm a big Mark fan. Um, the one thing that I really love about Mark is the way that he interacts with people online. He's one of the most approachable, personable guys. He's always interacting and he's building relationships with people all over the world all the time. And I've certainly taken pages um, out of his book with the way that I interact with people from a musician's point of view of being in a band um, online, because I think it's just really, really important, especially in the last you know decade or so with the big transition into the digital world and um, where a lot of bands have been left behind. I think Mark's just really embraced the communication aspect of it. And I think it's really lended to Jag Panzer's continued success after all these years as well. Um, but what you'll see, or what you'll hear in this episode, I should say, um, is that those qualities of Mark have not uh, just surfaced in the recent years. Um, this stems back from day dot, from uh, you know him being in a band and doing uh, a lot of tape trading back in the day. And for anybody that's been listening to this podcast for a while, um, with some of the particular guests I've had on, we have touched on tape trading in the past, but I haven't really dug into it too much. I've I've sort of just brushed over it, brushed over the concept because. I am a little bit younger and I only really did a little bit of tape trading at one point where um, I was exchanging like bootleg uh, VHS and cassettes um, with other people around Australia and overseas. So I had a few like random, like, I don't know, it must be like Metallica and Slayer and Pantera bootleg stuff, which I don't even own anymore. Um, so I had a little bit of a grasp of a concept of what that tape trading era may have been. Um, but in this conversation, when Mark brought it up, I really... I really dug into it a bit and we got talking for quite some time about tape trading and what, what it was all 
about and what it was like for him um, embracing it and getting into it and just how different it is to, to these days. I think for a lot of us, we, we take for granted how easy it is to connect with people. But, um, you know, decades ago with tape trading, you know, you posted things out and you waited for responses. And it was a very much a pen pal type relationship with people. But the really cool thing about this is that it really helped Jag Panzer in those early years because Mark had this network of people, metal fans that loved the same type of music all over the world. And so when it came time for Jag Panzer to release music, he had a network of people there ready to go to help him. So a really, really cool story. And um, we talk about the early era of the band, um, you know, a lot of different stages along the way. We talk about more recent times as well. Um, it's just a really great chat. Some really, really, really cool stories from Mark. He's such a nice guy. And it was so great to get him on the podcast finally. And, um, and also, I must say, if you want to check out their latest album, The Deviant Chord, um, you can do so. I'm sure you can find it from most uh, sort of metal online retailers. But um, if, you need, if need be, you can go to jagpanzer.com and follow the links there. You can find Jag Panzer on Facebook. Um, uh, they're also on Twitter. I don't think they're on Instagram. I could be wrong. Um, but nonetheless, you can go to the show notes over at andysocial.net. I'll have all the links to Jag Panzer and how you can buy the Deviant Chord and everything else. Um, I've got some uh, pictures and videos and everything over there, as always, with all of the episodes on the Andy Social Podcast. So you can go over there and check it out. But really, really stoked for this episode. Um, really enjoyed chatting with Mark. Such a cool guy. And I really think you guys will enjoy it as well. So enough of me. Please enjoy this episode with Mark Gordy and Jag Panzer. I had uncovered a deathly allergy to Brazil nuts. Other than that, I'm pretty healthy. Oh, maybe that's what I saw because I thought it was it. Yeah, that was was kind of scary. Yeah, I can't eat those nuts. It'll kill me. Well, I carry an EpiPen now, so um, I guess that would save my life. Oh, sometimes you find out the hard way. Yeah. (laughs) Um. So later this, well, actually next month, later next month, you're going over to Germany to do Bang Your Head. Um, and before that, you're doing a bunch of US shows. Has it been a while since you've done US shows? Um, two years. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we did some in uh, 2016. We did, uh, let's see. Um, no, we did San Diego last year. Yeah, and the year before, we did uh, Chicago and uh, Brooklyn. So, you know, definitely not a lot of shows, but uh, they were were a lot of fun. A lot of people came out and we had a good time. I I wish we could do a lot more shows. Has, as well, on that last note, that last thing that you said, uh, has touring changed quite a bit over the years? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, you know, back in the day on Century Media, they would set up a, you know, we were doing five, six weeks on the road and, and they would subsidize it. And it was great, but those days are gone. So now, you know, with every show we get asked to do, you know, we have to look, is this, is this financially possible? Um, you know, we don't, we make almost no money from the band. So for us to go out and play it, it has to, it has to at least break even. You know, we, we, just, we can't lose money going out because that would come out of, uh, out of my personal pocket. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I think the shows that you're doing in a, in a couple of weeks time, they're all sort of bunched together as well. So I'm assuming that you're you're trying to offset as much as you can between between that run of shows. Yeah, that's what I'm told. I I actually don't have anything to do with the live gigs. I I have everything to do with the songwriting and recording and and doing everything like that, but 
I, I try to stay out of the gigs. I just don't have the time to, to even have anything to do with it. So I just pretty much go where they tell me to go. <laughs> That's a different type of headache to have. Yeah, yeah. It's oh, I I mean I've done it before, and yeah, and it's it's a nightmare. It's a lot of coordinating and just a lot of things going on. I'm, I'm happy to not do it. And do you guys have, um, as it stands now, does everyone, is everything DIY as far as, you know, is it someone else in the band that's sort of taking care of a lot of that stuff or do you still have management that you lean on? Um, actually, the, it's the first time we got management was last year. Oh, Otherwise, wow. we've always done everything ourselves. Um, yeah, and we would divide the tasks up. You know, you're going to have to take care of this. You're going to have to take care of this. Uh, I, I've always sort of handled the... Uh, you know, doing the recording, booking, recording sessions, recording budgets. But even that's gotten way complicated nowadays because with our current record deal, we have to provide um, production ready everything, you know, album, artwork, photos. So, uh, you know, that's me tracking down someone to, you know, not only an artist, you know, we lucked out, we found a great artist with Tucson. But, you know, I have to track somebody down to do the layout and I have to deal with the budgets and delivery times. And so, yeah, just just dealing with the album recordings is is a ridiculous amount of work for probably uh, two cents an hour. And I'm not even joking with that amount. Uh, yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, we're in, in our band. We've been fairly lucky over the years because, um, you know, Tim in our band's been pretty deep into home recordings and over the years he's built up his his experience and so now he's got an, his own studio and we do everything ourselves but it's the same sort of thing where the amount of energy that you put into it and the time versus you know what you get back um financially it's very little so it's you've you've got to keep telling yourself it's it's for the love of it all yeah yeah and you really have to love doing it and i just love playing heavy metal man just really it never gets old and it, it's always exciting every time i get on stage uh with the guys it's just it's great it's like being a kid again so i do love it and and definitely with i mean metal being pretty unique as far as you know a type of music where there's such a a deep connection with people um uh, you know i think for for you guys and correct me if i'm wrong but a big part of your fan base and a really sort of long-term loyalty has come from a lot of German fans. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot in Germany, Greece too. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so to a certain, you know, a certain extent to us, um, not so much in, in Japan and uh, that area though. Yeah. Cause I mean, I've, I've always seen Japan's interesting. Um, I'll, and I'll touch on that really quickly because I know quite a few bands that have had a lot of success over the years and had some really good label um, coverage and just have not even managed to to drop anything in in Japan. Japan just hasn't blinked whatsoever. And it's just really unique. And it's such a unique and segregated market to everywhere else. It's just, you have to, it's almost like (laughs) you have to know someone. It's just, it's really, really hard to, to penetrate there. Yeah, I've I've never done a, a single interview in Japan ever for any reason. Um, the amount of email I've received from Japan is probably four emails in 20 years. Yeah, well, (laughs) well, actually I'll, I'll give you some reassurance. Well, kind of reassurance. I was over there a few weeks ago and I was in Tokyo and I did find a Jag Panzer CD on, on a shelf in a CD store. So there there is, there is a (laughs) tiny little bit of presence over there. I guess I did see one CD. (laughs) 
Yeah, I mean, I, I see videos, and, you know, in other bands, like the guys in Halloween were telling me about playing Japan. And, I'm, I mean, by all accounts, it's just amazing to play there. And, you know, the culture is fascinating. I, I, I'm just continually disappointed that we just can't make any any inroads there. It's, it's really hard because we're going through a pretty tough period at the moment because we let go of our last label a few years ago and – and a lot of our main contacts have sort of just dried up for, for various reasons. And so now we're, we're writing, well, we've finished writing the new album and we've started the recording process. And so we're getting to that point now where we've got to start thinking about, well, how do we shop this and, and look for new opportunities? And we've got to almost start from scratch in Japan again. So we've got to try and find some new contacts and really build relationships. And it's such a... I mean, I think it's changing a bit because it's a lot more westernized than it used to be, but it's such a sensitive market we've really the relationships mean almost more than the the music itself and you really have to cultivate that and make sure that they feel that you're really giving them time and and make and really sort of nurturing that relationship and it's it can be a really exhausting thing because i think in the western world we we're we're so much more transactional <laughs> and, yeah. and we we move quickly and we try to get to the point and we and we move on to the next thing but um there's just a there's a perception in japan where there's um there's just such such a, a really sort of deep relationship and connection that you have with people because if you for us you know you miss one year of going over there and then you feel like you've really sort of lost your momentum big time they they it's almost like they take it personally that you haven't come back and you know there's logical reasons why you, you can't always get back there every year but um it's uh it's just such a unique market so it's i don't i'm not surprised when a lot of really successful bands over the years or bands that have had a lot of exposure in a lot of other markets just don't get a don't get a look in whatsoever there yeah, well, I mean, I wish you guys best of luck there. I hope you can make it work out. I'm, j I'm definitely jealous. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll keep you posted because, I mean, even uh, there's, there's a lot, the thing, the thing with a lot of that, and you mentioned it before with the interviews. Um, we've never done an in interview abroad. We never get contacted, so we never get any email requests to do, to do interviews or, or anything you know over the phone or anything like that. But when you go over there and you play, then you get bombarded. So your afternoons are just filled with sitting down with people and, and going through that process of doing interviews. But you never do it any other time unless you're over there. And oh, so, interesting. Yeah, so it's really, really hard. And, and I think maybe it's changing a bit because I guess, as I said before, I think they're getting a little bit more Westernized and the language barrier isn't as bad as what it used to be. And, but I think, I think there's a little bit of a hesitation to do things remotely because of the language gap. And I think now they've got a little bit more confidence. So I'll, I'll keep you posted with how that journey goes, because I think it's going to be a very different uh, experience to what we've done, done in the past. Well, excellent. Yeah. I wish you luck. Oh, thank you very much. Um, Going back to uh, some of the other countries and markets that you guys have had some some success in, and I've always seen Germany because I think you guys have done a, a few different types of festivals over there. But it's I I always, I'm always fascinated with metal because it can be so niched and so broad at the same time. And from the outside looking in, you guys have seemed to really sort of capture this niche audience of a lot of old school heavy metal, the traditional heavy metal crowd in, especially Germany, you know, um, you know, that bang your head crowd. And I think you guys have done, have you, you guys done keep it true in the past as well. Yeah. Several times. Yeah. That's a, that's a fantastic festival. I love keep it. Yeah. And it's, I mean, that, that festival in itself is so unique in the sense that it's just, it's so niche down or niche down, uh, as, as you guys in the States would, would say. And, um, 
it's just, but it's the, the dedication and the loyalty is just incredible. I mean, those guys are diehards for their music. And have you guys, I mean, you guys would have a, a straight, uh, an immediate connection with, with the Germans in, in regard to, you know, how passionate these guys are about sort of a lot of traditional and, and um, especially U.S. power metal as well. Yeah, it's 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 a huge connection for me personally because um, Germany and you know in Greece and there's a few places where I meet fans that have the exact same feeling towards heavy metal that I do. I mean, if we're at a festival and we're not playing, I'm I'm out in front watching the show because I really really want to see the other bands, and I just I want to. I, I want to hear other live bands. I just want to experience it all uh, just the way. And, and so I have a lot in common with the fans in, in metal fans in Germany or Greece for the same way, because, you know, a lot of shows in the U S you tend to have, uh, it's, it's not so much underground metal, but more, more in the more mainstream shows in the U S you tend to have people just show up for the headliner mm. or show up for one band. You know, a, a lot of people don't want to sit through five bands, uh, which I, I was never like that. I, I want to see everybody. I want to see the whole thing. And so I, I really feel at home at a festival, like keep it true or bang your head because I can see all these bands uh, along with fellow metal fans. And, you know, there's sort of a camaraderie there. It's very cool. It's, it's one of those things. And I'm, I'm sure you can, you can agree, you know, touring for so many years that you can go to, different places around the world and reconnect with people and and then you connect with new people as well because you've got a common interest but it's amazing how how those connections just stick and you can go to various places on the other side of the world and just pick up where you left off yeah and it, you know it's also great getting to know some of these people a lot of these people have fascinating lives they just have completely unique occupations or they, they just come from a you know, a part of the world I've never been to, or it's just great to just connect with these people on so many different levels. And do you have a, do you have a segment of people that have just been, been there since almost day dot? Yeah, there's actually quite a bit of them. Um, a lot of people come and go <laughs> every time we come out with a new album, it always disappoints somebody is like, oh, <laughs> and I know that. Um, but then you see the people back after a while. I said, well, okay, I'm, I'm cool. I know what you're doing now. <laughs> I like the record now. So it's, we just kind of laugh it off. But yeah, it tends, there's a few people that they're always behind us and always at the gigs. And that is, I just, I really treasure that. That is very cool. But then there's a much bigger, bigger selection of people that, uh, you know, they come and go and that's fine. I, I appreciate anybody that, that listens to us or comes out and sees us. We, um, we've, we've got a bit of a concept with the band because I, I guess we've, we've never had, well, not for, not for quite a few years. We've never had sort of a, a, a really sort of large scale distribution of, of, our releases we've done a lot of stuff diy and we'll we'll export ourselves and so we'll we'll build those connections with independent you know music distributors and and try and send a bunch of wholesale you know discs out to people and and do it do it the hard way and um it's your your fan base is is sort of dictated on your distribution sometimes and and so for us we've always sort of thought well what's our inner circle and you sort of look and you start, it, it almost gets to a point where you write out a list of names of these people that have just been there since day dot. Every time you put something up online or you sell something, 
you get an order straight away. They're the first people to share your things around. They're the first people to to tell you how awesome you know the new music is or whatever it is. And so you've got like it's this extension of the band where you've got like the you know the fifth or the sixth member or depending on how many people are in the band. And that's it's sort of like if you can if you can make them happy, it's almost like that's your. I don't know, it's your organic street team. It's your organic marketing team. And they sort of go out and do a lot of that hard work for you. And I've seen, you know, just knowing you for, for a few years now online and seeing a lot of the way that you interact with people on forums and on social media, you've got, I mean, you could, you could be looking at this from a completely different angle than I am, but you have such a, a direct connection with people and you interact with them Um very consistently all the time and it's it's not like a a separation it's just you it's it's everyone's on the same page and i think you've it from the outside looking in it looks like you've really embraced a lot of a lot of people that uh that feel passionate about you and your music yeah oh well yeah thank you um yeah you know what i i try to treat people the way you know i always wanted to be treated as a metal fan i mean i've been going to metal gigs I had a fake ID as a teenager so I could get into <laughs> metal shows. So I've been going since I was a kid and, and, and people that made a big impact on me were guys like Lemmy because Lemmy just saw you as another guy. It wasn't like he's the rock star, you're the fan. And, and unfortunately many, many other bands see it like that. You know, they're the star, you're, you know, they're going to make your day by speaking to you for 30 seconds. And, and, Lemmy was never like that. I didn't know Lemmy, but I ran into him all the time, you know, you know, and he would recognize me, but it's not like we were friends or anything. But, you know, I had met him when I was a kid and he just treated me like a, a, another music fan. I talked to him about gear and beer and I went looking at fake merchandise with him in Mexico once. Oh, well. wanted, like, and it was just it was such a great experience for me just you just to have someone on an equal level so i've always bow, vowed when uh i'm interacting with people online you know just to treat everybody like they're a fellow heavy metal fan that's it um i i don't care how old they are or how young they are or even if if they like jack panzer i mean i, I i'll talk to anybody about metal because it's it's in my blood so uh, yeah I, I make it a point really to to treat it try to treat people well i think it, it it's definitely it definitely shows and, and obviously it's a it's a natural thing for you to do so i mean that's why you do it but um i think just i think a lot of people notice that and i think that's uh, it maybe maybe it's not as unique these days now as we become more and more connected online and people get used to using social media and it's the the mystery of the big uh, you know, amazing band, the the rock star sort of mentality sort of dilutes a bit. Um, it, it probably won't be as unique and a lot more people will embrace it. But um, I've certainly seen it over the years and seen the way that you, you interact. And I've, I've taken a page from, from the way that you do it, because I think it's, it's um, I think it goes a long way to, to building really good relationships with people and just, um, just building respect back and forth between people. I think it's just a, it's a great, it's a great human quality to have. Oh, thank you. Once again, I keep saying, <laughs> thank, 
You know, I've over the years I've had people tell me to quit doing that. Oh, really? <laughs> okay. Yeah, I, and it, that's sad when I hear it because I, I I know what they mean, but I, you know that's just not me. I've had people say, you know, you you've got to act more like a rock star, and I, I'm not a rock star. I don't even know how one. I mean, I'm not going to act like that. Yeah, I've had people suggest to me. People in the music industry said, you know, you've got to be more distant. You've got to be aloof. You've got to be be the guy on the pedestal and that is so not me absolutely not so i just i i could never do that that's just completely out of my wheelhouse well i think i think with metal it 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 makes more sense to be so connected with people i think you know apart putting aside you know what people should do as far as you know basic decent human qualities of of talking and interacting and respecting one another um metal's got that thing where it's there is an element of that grassroots approach where people just connect and get along and we find common ground and common interests very quickly and i think um you know it's not it's not so foreign for for metal musicians and and fans and you know music and music fans to to connect like that so it's not that out there but i think when you start to get into it's different now but i th- i'm sure years ago with a lot of sort of more your glitzy hard rock and your big sort of arena bands and you know, whatnot would probably it would make more sense i guess in a particular way to be distant and be mysterious and 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 project a certain a certain image where people you know it's lofty and it's and people can't directly relate to it yeah, and I, I, you know, I, I experienced that a lot in the '80s, where I would go see bands and try to talk to somebody and just be completely shunned. And it, uh, you know, I, I didn't like it. it. It just, I didn't like the experience. You know, I would, I went to see Rat once, and I wasn't a big fan of their music. Love their guitar playing, though. Mm. You know, Walt T. Martini's great. You know, and I, they wouldn't give me the time of day, but you know, <laughs> what it is, you know. Not not trying to get down on rat here, but you know, it was like that with a lot of bands. And uh you know, it's it was unfortunate to me. I, I always liked the the personal connection. Well, that might be a good segue because I was gonna ask you about and I th- I think I've got this right, uh in sort of the mid to late eighties, you guys for a brief period of time relocated to Southern California. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll get to that in a moment, but I, I, you said something before and I have to, I'll kick myself if I don't dig into this a little bit deeper, but you went searching for fake merchandise with Lemmy in Mexico. Yeah, we were playing in Mexico. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I always try to notice, you know, what merch sells for, who's selling it, what's going on. I was trying to keep an eye on the business and we were playing the, uh, the Monterey metal festival and I was very puzzled how almost no merchandise was being sold. And I was standing where looking around and I'm peering outside and I see people selling bootleg merchandise. Yeah. <laughs> and then Lemmy taps me onto my shoulder and says, uh, Hey mate, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not even going to try his accent. He said, yeah. I'm going to go check it out. You want to go? And I'm like, yeah. And then one of the guys from the festival said, look, you can go out there and, you know, and look, Please don't try to cause any trouble. You know, you're you're not. It's not going to turn out well for you guys. And uh, Lemmy said that's cool. You know, I, I think he was obviously talking to Lemmy. You know, Jack Panzer merchandise is 
was probably one one hundredth of motorheads there. So, yeah, I went out with Lemmy, and he just uh, he was very nice to the people. He just he wanted to see what they were producing, what the quality was. So uh, we went to a few different vendors, and we were just uh, we were looking at the merch, and I. I bought a Jagpanzer hat and an embroidered Jagpanzer shirt for like ridiculously cheap. And they're pretty cool. I still have them. <laughs> that's, a, that's a surreal moment. I mean, obviously, just sort of walking around looking at bootleg merchandise with Lemmy's one thing, but to to stand there and, and go and purchase, you know, what is your own band's merchandise, but, you know, unofficial is pretty a pretty surreal moment. Yeah, and it was funny because the people selling it had no idea who <laughs> or who the bands were or anything. They were just selling a product. And, uh, you know, I had a good interaction with them and paid them and got my hat and shirt. <laughs> that's, that's crazy. Oh, um, so, yeah, going back, uh, and you mentioned before about Rat, and I guess the question is with uh, at that period of time when you guys, you know, temporarily mo- relocated to Southern California – was that sort of a big feeling that you did get when you were in California with that that disconnect and with a lot of bands? Because I'm I'm stereotyping quite a bit here or generalising, but a lot yeah, of those was, types of bands came from came from that area, that scene. It was uh, yeah, it was terrible for us out there. I mean, we met Joey Defoy, so in in that respect, that was very good because he was a great player and you know been a huge contributor to the band. But otherwise, it was we. I had no idea the music business worked like that. At that time in L.A., um, all the bigger bands all had so much money behind them. You know, huge walls of Marshall stacks, big banners, road crews. Uh, we, we've never had a road crew ever. You know, I'll, sometimes there's one on a tour, but you know, I'm usually, you know, hauling my own gear around. So that, that whole thing was it was so bizarre for us to see how it worked there. And, you know, we all grew up in absolutely the poorest part of town. So you know, we didn't have money for walls of stacks and stage shows or anything like that. And, you know, we found that out in LA that uh, all the bands that we thought were sort of on our level, kind of like Armored Saint. No, they were way, way above it because they had, you know, were able to put on a full stage show. We're able to put ads in magazines. So, you know, we really got nothing done out there. It was, it was actually very depressing. And was it? I mean, obviously, there's there's a financial aspect to it all, but was was there also a different attitude there compared to where you guys had, had grown up and and sort of developed the band? Yeah, entirely different attitude. Um, the attitude in Colorado at the time was everybody plays originals. I mean, I'm sorry, I got completely backwards. Everybody plays covers because yep. we used to covers when we were in high school if you're going to play originals you better be really good and really practicing we used to practice all the time we we once went a year and a half and we practiced every day christmas i mean every day you know that was sort of the thing in colorado was these songs better be great and you better be good players and it wasn't like that in la you know there, there certainly were lots of great players but really a lot of the focus out there was how big is your stage show? How, how, you know, you have pyro, how dynamic is the presentation? And uh, that was pretty much, that didn't mean much at all in Colorado, uh, whereas that was huge out there. So that was a big shock to us. And did you guys, I mean, when, when you guys relocated out there, did you, did you just all sort of bundle together and get like a, 
a place to share to live for for that period of time or how did that all work i guess logistically yeah we we all lived in a house and uh we quickly learned you know we didn't know anything about the music business we quickly learned that there there is no money coming in so we all started to find work and uh, only a few of us found jobs so we ended up just coming back to colorado after about five months (laughs) And, and going i mean Getting back home, did you feel that, I guess, was it a case of having the tail between your legs or did you sort of, I mean, obviously you said before it, was, it wasn't it was a great experience, but did you take a, a lot out of that experience, you know, to, I guess, motivate you guys to, to t- take it on from a different angle or how did, how did you guys interpret the experience in hindsight? Yeah, I was mad, actually. I, I knew we could never compete on the financial level of some of these bands. We just, we couldn't. I mean, we, we just couldn't have a wall of marshals it wasn't going to happen um you know so we just we went back to colorado and said okay we just we got to try to make our music better we got to try to just and, and that led to the writing of ample destruction you know that they thought we thought that was our only hope that's what i thought you know we're not going to outspend these bands so we just we have to try to be better and- um, so yeah it, it most certainly motivated me there's this band has uh, has failures all the time. I mean, it's always so. I try to take motivation out of every one of them. I mean, it can get very tough at times, but uh, I love the music, so I, I pull through. And I mean, speaking to a lot of guys that were putting out albums in the eighties and and trying to network and try and get their name out there, I mean, it's a completely different world to what it what it is now, where you know you can. Within within ten seconds, I can I can click a couple of buttons and connect with anybody on the planet. But um, you know, a few decades ago, it's um, it was a completely different story. And so when you guys got got back and you're trying to you know you, you're fueled by anger, <laughs> you know, um, what was what what were the steps to sort of you know get those connections and and sort of work for that release? I mean, was I mean obviously tape trading and things like that were a big thing to get awareness of of bands and music, but I mean, what sort of things did you have to do to sort of make sure that you guys got a, a look in, got a, got an opportunity? Well, I th- I think we really lucked out because I was my appetite for underground metal was just insatiable. I mean, I just had to hear new bands all the time, so I became an avid tape trader, not to promote Jag Panzer, but to hear other bands. You know, I was getting cassette tapes with Sorlidge and Ostrogoth and bands like that, and going man this, this music's fantastic i gotta I got get more so i became a huge tape trader you know, I, I was dubbing tapes every day you know making a, a, a trip to the post office every saturday with a huge stack for around the world so that that certainly helped promote jag panzer um even though i, I didn't really promote jag panzer with I, maybe i'd throw a song on there I, I didn't really i didn't put flyers in there or anything in the packages saying you know listen to my band i just for me, it honestly, what I got out of tape trading was was hearing the other bands. You know, it was I did it as a metal fan. Um, so eventually, through tape trading, I heard about a lot of different magazines. So I would just sit down and write letters to every metal magazine. I, I didn't care how big they were. Um, if it was one guy doing a metal magazine uh, from a copy machine, he got a letter from me and a tape. Or if you're the biggest you know, huge metal magazine like, you know, Kerrang! was pretty much one of the world's biggest. Um, you know, they got a letter and a tape from me also. So I, I was, uh, for a while, I was doing it 
every single day. You know, every day I was trying to hunt down new fanzines or just anybody to promote the band to. And, uh, and it helped. That, that, your local post office must have known you so well. Oh, they actually did. Yeah, they knew me. Hey, Mark. Um, yeah, so they, they were very cool um, because a lot of in the early days it got complicated sending international packages. And I was just a kid; I didn't know anything about the customs form, so they were great. So uh, I actually had a good relationship with the local post office. <laughs> and I mean, going back to the tape trading thing, and not um, not sort of really actively, you know. I guess what we would what we would say now is spamming, but you know, um, you know, promoting the band at the time and including a lot of Jag Panzer music was it was there a certain type of etiquette or an unspoken law when it came to ta- tape trading, like things that you do and things that you don't do? Um, well, what I did, it, which you know, I don't I don't want to say it's the etiquette for everybody. What I felt was the etiquette was I would never give more Jag Panzer songs than any other band. Okay, yeah. If, if, I got, uh, if I got a tape and it had two songs from, you know, like if I got a tape of Swedish metal and it's got Oz and Overdrive on there and they each had a couple songs, I would throw in a couple Jag Panzer songs and a couple Warlord songs and maybe a couple Malice songs in my return tape of U.S. metal. So, uh, yeah, to me, that was the etiquette is, is to never give more Jag Panzer than what, what was sort of being presented in that, that conversation, if that makes sense. Yeah, 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 no, definitely. I, I was just, when you made the comment about, uh, yeah, not, not putting a lot of music in there, I thought, oh, I wonder if there was some unspoken laws around tape trading back in the day where, you know, someone might frown upon somebody that's just loading up a cassette full of their own music. Yeah, people did do it, and it was certainly frowned upon. <laughs> I just remember getting a few emails saying, oh, I got a tape from that one band. You know, why don't they, you know, practice more instead of <laughs> instead of sending out tapes to everybody? And so, yeah, it, it, people definitely did notice when someone uh, was, was seen to be doing this live spamming. Definitely. And, I mean... Oh. What was, how do you, how do you sort of, I'm trying to think of the best way to word this, but you know, the whole tape trading thing, because you just don't have like a a directory of such to, to find these people. How do you, how do you build this network of people where you start sending tapes to different, different people? Where's the first address come from? Is it, is it out of magazines? Is there like a classified in, in metal magazines? It's out of magazines. A lot of the fanzines back then had sort of a pen pal section. Ah. And, uh, Pretty soon you start recognizing names, you know, like KJ Doughton, uh, you know, huge instrumental and Metallica success. Mm. I first saw his name on a tape trader list, and then I saw his name writing some articles, and I thought, okay, this, this is, you know, he's well connected in the metal underground, and, and him and I had, you know, we have a very good friendship over the years. So you keep building relationships like that. Um, you know, I for a while I would write to everybody on the. Uh, the pen pal list. And, uh, you know, it was always just a letter first, just introducing myself, seeing if they're interested in tape trading. And it was, it was usually about one in four people would want to trade tapes. I think at the height, I probably had about 300 people on my trading list. Wow. Incredible. <laughs> it's, um, I mean, it's, it's such a patient game as well, isn't it? Because I mean, you've got to wait for people to, to respond and before they say yes. And then, and then, you know, then sending the tapes back and forth, and then to have three hundred people, I guess eventually you've just got a steady stream of tapes coming in and going out all the time. But um, 
There's yeah, definitely a, level, thank, definitely a level of patience there. Thankfully, it was never all 300 at one time. No. Um, <laughs> there's a lot, though. And, you know, back then it was real. The tape had to run real time. Yeah. To copy, you know, I just hooked up two cassette decks, clean the heads, <laughs> and just ran tapes all while I was practicing. You know, I would, I would often spend, you know, hours and hours in the evening just running tapes. Oh, well, that would have kept you out of trouble. And then I'd get my mom's typewriter, and I typed up all the labels. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. It's, um, it's, I mean, I never, I, I never sort of got to experience a lot of that, but um, I did come in on the end of a little bit of pen pal stuff where you sort of connect with people just before email started to kick in. So, but I loved, I loved getting something in the mail, which we don't often get these days. And, um, and being able to sort of connect with, you know, I mean, I was, I was, you know, attempting to handwrite letters, which were probably embarrassingly, uh, you know, hard to read, but, um, there's something, there's something really special about having that sort of connection with people that's, um, that involves time and distance and having to wait for a response and being really thoughtful about what you write and what you, what you give them. I mean, even with your choice of songs that you send back, you have to sort of really be intentional about what you put together because you know it's not something that you can quickly change it's 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 going to take some time so you gotta you gotta make sure you're on the money oh yeah because you're the quality of your mixtape i mean that was a big deal if i'm sending somebody uh you know a couple merciful fate tracks i gotta pick the right ones um but people noticed you know um if somebody would have sent a tape and it was always the song one and two from an album (laughs) And, uh, yeah, so you really had to, uh, and I liked doing it, you know, I liked picking which warlord songs I want to send somebody. And it it was cool. After you respond with somebody for a while, you kind of learned their taste. So then you started thinking, Hey, what would this guy like? And then it was this just, it was completely custom mixed tapes for, uh, for each person you talk to. And that, that became really fun. Do you, I mean, you mentioned, um, one of the guys before, but do you, do you still keep in contact with any of these guys that you're tape trading with back in the eighties? Yeah, I, I think there's, there's probably about 10 of them on Facebook. Yeah. And, uh, it's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody remembers back in the day. <laughs> That's cool. And when, when Jag Panzer started to do some tours and, and, you know, release, release music, did you start to see, you know, uh, any sort of reaction from people that you'd built relationships with from the tape trading? Like suddenly there you'll get any acknowledgement from, from those guys that you'd built those connections with. I, I think most of the tape trading people said it's about time. Everyone else caught up to listening to your band. <laughs> yeah. All, uh, most of my tape trader friends all, you know, they became Jag Panzer fans, which was, was really cool. I appreciated that. But then they were some of the first. So, uh, yeah, they all, they would always joke about, it's about time these other people are, are catching on. <laughs> and it's, I mean, it's, it's good, isn't it? Because I mean, you're doing it for different reasons. You, you were doing it for the love of, of music and connecting with people and, and sending things backwards and forwards and showing people different bands and different songs. And, but on the side and maybe indirectly, you've been, you were cultivating and building this fan base for the future that, um, you had you had this immediate you know loyalty from people because you had that that personal connection with with so many people. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, and you know it, it's it was interesting how 
you know, you could build up a relationship with somebody just over mail. You know, you, you just sort of got a sense of their personality. And and uh, it's funny meeting some of these people on tour years later. They, they really were like what I thought they were. You know, I had a vision in my mind from tape training and reading their letters. And, yeah, it, people were very cool in person. They are exactly what I thought they would be. And do you still have a lot of those letters? Um. You know, I, I probably lost about 90% of them. We had a flood here. Uh, well, we've had fires and floods here. No. <laughs> we had a flood here about 12 years ago, and uh, I just had such limited time to get things out of the water. And, and unfortunately, I didn't grab uh, my biggest box of letters. And I, I also lost my biggest box of fanzines. Oh, wow. Well, at least at least you still got your memory. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, Shifting gears a little bit, um, I did read somewhere, and I, I was trying to find it um, this week to because I wrote a bunch of notes earlier in the year when I was um, hoping to speak to you, and time got away from us. But um, and I was going back through the notes, and I saw this thing that I wrote down. I thought, oh, okay, where is it? I'm trying to find it online. But can you tell me about the Chuck Berry story? Yeah, I was. Uh, you know, we had a local uh, sound crew here in town, sound company. They did light and sound. They were called ESP. Just great company. I mean, great equipment, knowledgeable guys who knew everything about live sound. And uh, I used to just go in there as a kid, like 15. or in, So I'd ride my bike down there and just to look around. And they were really cool. And I asked a lot of questions. And they said, hey, uh, hey you want to work for us? You know, we can't pay. And you're going to be moving gear. I mean, that, that's your, your, your main job. You're going to move gear. Um, you're also going to be a gopher if the artist needs an errand run. You know, we're going to have clips. You're going to string cables. You know, you might play some mics. And I said, absolutely. I would love to do it. So I've worked about every show with them. You know, I wasn't on the payroll, so I wasn't technically an employee, but I was there all the time. So you got to meet all these musicians, and, and some were, were great. Uh, some were horrible. I mean, some were just some of the worst people, but some were great. Um, Chuck Berry was awesome. I mean, I loved Chuck Berry when I was a kid and he walked in, he just traveled by himself. He was in a station wagon. And uh, so we got a local band. He walks in with his guitar and amp. And I said, oh, welcome to Colorado, Mr. Berry. He said, Mr. Berry, I like that son. And he smiled. <laughs> it was cool. And uh, I was watching him get his guitar out of his case, you know, and he said, you can get closer, you know, you can take a look, you know, and he, he showed me his guitar and I asked him how he, how he warmed up. And uh, he was just a great guy. Just, just really answered all my questions and was really cool. Uh, helped him load up afterwards. Uh, he's very appreciative of the help. He was, uh, yeah, it was, an, it was just absolutely wonderful experience working with Chuck Berry. Yeah, I was, I was blown away when I, I think it must have been a, a written interview that I saw online because you mentioned, mentioned this story and I was just, I was blown away with somebody of, of his stature, you know, in music, somebody that's just this, this larger than life personality and to, to see him doing it on such a DIY level and embracing that and the way that he interacts, is just incredible. And I think that just sort of feeds into what we were saying before about, you know, how, how you interact with people that love your music and being on the same level as them. I think it's just so, it's just so cool to see people that you just, I don't know. I just, I would never have ever expected to to hear that kind of story. 
Yeah, it was funny. I was, you know, I was asking him questions about the music business and the, the place he played was a smaller place, but it was packed. I mean, he could have played a bigger venue and drew a bigger crowd, but uh, he told me with things like that, because I asked him about that and he said, son, with things like this, it's about the business side of it. It's about, you know, how I can work my touring schedule, how much money I can make, because he says it's a business to me. Hmm. So, you know, I started to understand, you know, maybe, you know, the do it yourself, just getting a band in each city that, uh, that worked well from a business point of view for Chuck. It was a business model that worked well for him. So that was a good education for me. Yeah. It's, um, it blows my mind that, uh, that, yeah, I would never have picked Chuck Berry to, to be like that. That's just incredibly cool. Um, okay. Shifting gears again. Um, the, so you put out the last album last year, so it hasn't been out for too long. So we're probably jumping the gun a bit, but have you guys been writing for a next album? Have you got sort of sights set on a next album or are you, you more in sort of a, a touring mode at the moment and letting the, the album get a bit of uh, a bit of airtime in the, in the, uh, at the moment? Yeah, I, I have, I haven't started writing anything yet. I need to, uh, I always have to be motivated to write and a record company telling me you need to write a new album does not work for me at all. <laughs> I always have to uh, absolutely just have to feel the need to write. And I've did, done so much press for this album over the year. I mean, just a ton. And then just individually conversing with people and back and forth that I just, I'm in more of the promotion mode for it and not, not really in the songwriting mode. I mean, I, I, I've been songwriting for years, so I think I could pick up my guitar and write something, but I just, I don't like to do it that way. It's got to come from the heart. It's got to be a natural expression for me, um, which is good and bad. I mean, it makes me feel good. Um, I get the occasional email from somebody that doesn't like it, that somebody says, you know, you need to do an album every year and you need to do Ample Destruction too. <laughs> I bet you heard that a few times. Yeah. I, I I just, I write what I write, you know, whatever I move to write at the time when I'm motivated to write, um, you know, that's what I do. And, and I just not in the, uh, not in the writing mode right now. No, definitely. And, um, the last album was through SPV. Uh, so is that going to be an ongoing relationship with them for the foreseeable future? Uh, I think we're done. Um, you know, we finished our contract and there was another option. And uh, actually, I think the last album was the option. Yeah, how embarrassing that I don't know this stuff. Um, I, I think we're done with SPV, but I, I can't say that for sure. Yeah, yeah, no worries. And, and I think, uh, as you said, like uh, if you if you're not even in writing mode yet, then uh, yeah, well, that's a that's a, a think about uh, later thing to to worry about. Yeah, yeah. Um, one thing that we, you, you touched on really early in the conversation and about the last album, the deviant chord, you were talking about, um, you know, having to source a lot of things yourself and the, and the label pretty much requesting, you know, almost the final product. So, you know, a lot of it goes back into the band's hands to, to create everything. And you mentioned the artwork as well and sourcing, you know, an artist to do the, the cover. And, uh, this has been an ongoing challenge for, for us in our band and trying to work out who to work with and searching for people. And I'm curious, you know, 
with what you've done and for the last album and sourcing the artist for the Deviant Chord, um, what were you looking for and how did you search for artists? I mean, what was, what was the approach that you took or what did you have in mind or what was the type of conversation that you were having with people to see if you could find the right person for whatever your vision was? Well, you know, the first thing I look for is, is a certain level of technical skill. I, I don't go, you don't have to be the greatest artist in the world, but you have to hit a certain level of technical skill. And then from then on, it's all passion. I, I want to see passion in the art. I, I don't want to, because I can look at art, especially in the fantasy genre sometimes, and I get the impression right or wrong that the guy painted it to pay his rent that month. Uh, is fine. You know, I don't begrudge anybody trying to make money on art, but I, I just, for Jag Panzer stuff, I, I know the passion that we put into writing and playing. So I want artwork that's got a passion to it. So it, I actually look for artists for a couple years. I started going to, uh, I always go to Comic-Con. I went to Comic-Con Denver, uh, my local Comic-Con, which it's considered small, but I think it gets about 10,000 people. And uh, they would have lots of artists there. And it was so disappointing of how much bad attitude I ran into there. I, I would always find about five artists a day. I'm like, yeah, that looks good. And I would talk to the guy and, you know, and you would hear, no, I'm not interested in, uh, I don't work for bands. And, you know, even before I had a chance to say, I'm not asking for anything for free, I will gladly pay you for your work. Um, so, yeah, and that, that was happening all the time dealing with Comic-Con. It was just, it was so frustrating because there was a lot of great artists there. And I wasn't even getting one that was interested. So, uh, yeah, I was pretty down on the whole thing of uh, of finding an artist. You know, I knew I had to keep doing it. So I was, you know, I was doing these nightly searches every night for fantasy art. And it was just, no, no, talk to that guy. No, talk to that guy. And then one day I see this uh, fortune teller painting. And I'm like, wow, that's good. Wow. And, and the artist was Dusan Markovic from Serbia. So I Googled him and I found a bunch more of his artwork. And all of it was great. I mean, it wasn't like he had one great painting there and then a couple ones that aren't as good. I mean, they were all great. And I could see the the passion, not only the passion, but is it just skill level was through the roof. I thought, <coughs> this guy's so good, he's probably a total ass. He's probably like, <laughs> and I was going, you know, on one hand, I really I probably couldn't blame him because he's really that good. I absolutely <laughs> love his art. And I wrote him and he was a great guy. He's great. We were totally on the same page with what we wanted, what he wanted to paint for art, what I wanted to see. Um, his budget was absolutely reasonable because uh, I have no problem paying people for their work. I, I think artists should be paid, but we have a very, very tiny budget. And uh, he was able to work with us and he just delivered some great art. He delivered it on time and he was absolute professional to work with. So it was a wonderful experience working with him. It's um. Oh man, listening to you sort of go through that process of trying to find people and searching. I mean, it's certainly something that we've done all the time and you try to, you try to talk to people and approach people. And, and I guess, I guess from a, an artist's perspective, they probably get hassled so often by so many different people and they probably see so many time wasters as well that um, they get so jaded and bitter 
that um, when when somebody legitimate actually comes along, it's it's uh, it's difficult to sort of separate uh, you know the good from the bad. And I mean, we we had so many troubles uh, over the years, and then you know we we'd cease working with somebody, then we'd think, okay, who are we going to find now? And then you have to sort of you have to try and express and and explain what's in your head <laughs> to somebody who can who can visually create it, and it's. Um, you know, it, it can be a bit of a nightmare to, to try and manage. But um, yeah, I saw I saw a couple of comments about and what you said earlier in the chat about um, you having to actively sort of source and, and really search for somebody that was going, going to meet what your expectations were. And it's, um, it's something that I, th I see a lot of bands um, these days sort of fall into the uh, the complacent sort of autopilot um, mode of of just churning out really subpar artwork, where yeah. where it becomes oh well that's the last thing on the list of things to do before you release the album and I'll just I'll just slap a bit of Photoshop together and just put out this piece of crap and, and the music yeah. could be fantastic but the the artwork unfortunately you know the the book does get judged from the cover and and yeah. that's part of and it's got to create a visual as well as the 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 sound. And so many bands let themselves down because they just do not put the time into their into their visual aspect. Oh, I'll tell you an interesting story about art. This was one of my, I've had several rough lessons in the music business, and uh, we were doing "Thing to the Throne." I'm looking for an artist, and my absolute favorite artist at the time was Keith Parkinson. He had done various book covers, and the guy was great. I wrote his, I guess, his management or agent, and it got shot down immediately. You know, Keith doesn't do metal covers. He doesn't do any album covers. No, he's he's a busy man. He's booked way in advance. And, you know, I understood. Uh, he's a world-class fantasy artist. Uh, but I wrote another email. I just outlined the project, and I didn't expect to hear back. And then uh, Keith Parkinson called me himself on the phone. Well. And said, uh, hey, I liked your letter, and I went out and listened to your band. And I'm not really a metal guy, but... I like this. And he said, you're doing a Macbeth theme album cover. I, I've always wanted to paint a scene for Macbeth and it, if I get paid to do it. That would be great. So I was beyond excited. He gave me his fee, which was incredibly high, <laughs> but you know, I was, I was broke out my spreadsheet and I'm thinking, you know, I kind of had an idea what other bands on the label were getting for budgets. And I knew that, uh, about 80% of our album was, uh, was being recorded in my house. So I'm thinking, you know, even with, because we can get the recording budget so low, I think we can record, I think we can afford to do it for the art. So I was excited. I called the record company. Nope, immediately shot down. <laughs> and I'm like, why? I think we can afford it. No, you, Jag Panzer, cannot spend that much money on, on an artist, even if you personally think you cannot do it. We have a precedence at the label as to what bands get what for art, and bands here that sell a lot more than you don't get that much for art. Mm. So I, I just, it was absolutely off the table to have Keith do the album cover for Thane of the Throne, which was just completely deflated me. Uh, I, I absolutely love his art, and he really wanted to do it, and uh, he's dead now. Mm. <laughs> And it, it was, but you know that's the music business. Anytime something happens like that, I try to, uh, even though I may be angry about it, I, I try to also look at it from the other point of view. So I, I can see it from the record company's point of view. 
you know, any band that's, that's well-managed and sells a lot more than us, they probably knew who Keith Parkinson was. They probably knew how much he charged. So I imagine if we had one of his covers, uh, the record company would have been getting a lot of angry calls from bigger bands than us. So why does Jag Panzer get his artwork? So I, I do understand it, but it was it was sort of a brutal wake-up call to the way the music business works. Well, I'll tell you what. I mean, if you're looking at it from a silver lining point of view, it it does make a good story. <laughs> so you got something wow. out of it. Wow. Touching on um, Thane to the Throne, I'll, I'll, uh, and I'm looking at the time, so we'll I'll wrap it up in a tick, but um, I'll, I'll have to mention, because I, I just never thought about it until you started exp uh, talking about that album. Um, King at a Price was the first song that I ever heard. And oh, cool. I was, uh, me and a friend of mine in high school um, were, you know, were at the, the end of... Um, towards the end of high school, but we were sort of just starting to really sort of dig into metal that was more than, you know, your big four and, and whatever was mainstream. And um, and just suddenly opened up a world of what we thought at the time was European metal. We thought you guys were from somewhere in the depths of, of Europe. And uh, and then we eventually we found um, the album itself in a store and we bought it. We bought one copy between the two of us and um, we just kept swapping it back and forth. But... Uh, <laughs> But uh, King at a Price was the, the first song that we actually heard, and I think I think I found it online, and then that led to us finding the CD in a in a store. And um, it was you guys, and I think it must have just been because was Thane to the Throne the first one on Century Media, or was there one before that? Um, it was the third on Century Media. Fourth Judgment and uh, Age of Mastery were before it. Ah, right. Okay. So I, I mean, maybe it was just a, it was a bit of a Century Media time because I guess you know there was a bit of a bit of uh, distribution there. But um, I think it was you guys and Iced Earth and um, there's a couple of other bands at the time, and it was just our eyes just got opened up for this amazing world of metal. And um, I think it went from you know liking a few songs from a few different bands here and there, and sort of just being a bit of a casual listener and just being more interested in other things in life to becoming absolutely diehard and this, you know, enthusiast of, of music and just wanting and not being able to stop, like just wanting to discover more and more and more. So, um, you know, eventually not, you know, a little while later and connecting with you through the old metal rules forums, uh, back in the day. And then, um, yeah. and then, um, we had a brief encounter, oh, it must've been 2005 or something like that over at bang your head. And, um, and just, you know, everything since then, it's just, it's amazing to see, you know, at least from my point of view, my, my journey with, with metal music and seeing all that and then having a chat to you now, it's just, it's a bit of a surreal moment because, um, and I didn't even think about it before giving you a call today because I was just, I'm, I'm looking at everything else that you've been involved with over the years. And then just when you mentioned that album name, I thought, oh, wow, there you go. It's, it's come full circle. Yeah, it was a fun album to do. I mean, we were real. Everybody was really, really focused on that record in supporting the Macbeth story. We, we approach it like a soundtrack and like, you know, the, the whole idea with us and everybody was on board is like, look, the important thing about this is Shakespeare's story. I mean, this is a classic story. So we really need to do it justice with a metal soundtrack. So it was great seeing everybody absolutely on board with that idea. It's, um, it's, it's one of those albums that you sort of look back on and, um, I guess it's like anything it's, it's, you know, albums that you listen to in defining periods of, of your life. You know, I'm sure you've got a whole bunch of 
albums and, and bands that you listen to sort of in earlier years where you'll you'll get taken back. It's like a time machine. And um, when I hear certain songs or albums, and, and that album is one where I sort of just get thrown back <laughs> into to a, a completely different time in my life. But it's um, I look back really fondly, and it's um, some great feelings when when I listen to that album and, and a lot of a lot of uh, music from from around that period of time. So it's um, yeah, I must I'll, I'll say it right now. Thank you very much for for helping me uh, sort of fall into oh. this rabbit hole of rabbit hole of metal. <laughs> Glad to hear it. Thank you. It's <laughs> cool. funny with Pain uh, was the first album we started joking in the band about the Jag Panzer curse. That's what we call when we come out with an album and it gets released, and and a lot of people are like, "Yeah, that's pretty cool. That's okay." And then about six years later, oh man, that album's great. Oh <laughs> uh, well, I guess I guess in years gone by now, and sort of you know me getting into into music and, and playing in bands and, and releasing albums. I mean, we I've I've seen that firsthand now. You release an album and for us we had you know, we changed the name of our band in two thousand and five and went from Dungeon to Lord. And we're the same we we are the same band, we just changed our name. So we play all the the first era of the band. We consistently do that, but there's a stigma attached to the first band or the first name um, where people always gravitate towards that that band that band is always better than what we are now and so we had a lot of trouble releasing stuff under lord to begin with because we had to win over the crowd that were purists for dungeon and that was fine and we we had a bit of a strategy in place but then we put out the album and you know we got the mixed mixed reviews and it was a little bit lukewarm and some people liked it some people you know weren't terribly interested and then you'd release the next one under lord and then they would turn around and say, well, this one's not that good, but your last one, that was way better. And then, <laughs> yeah. and, and now, you know, uh, what are we probably, um, yeah, 13 years in with Lord. Now there's so many people that don't even look back on Dungeon and we put out an album or put out a release now and people will completely disregard what we're putting out now. But the one that we put out, that first Lord album that everyone disregarded back then, they talk about how amazing that album was and how, you know, you'll never you'll never be able to touch that one. And that was the best thing that you ever did for both Lord and Dungeon. And you just, you sit there and you scratch your head and you go, you can't win. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we feel exactly the same way. It's but, funny when Apple came out, um, you know, people now tell me, you know, I, I hear from people that say, oh, you know, Ample's an 80s metal classic. And I, I always appreciate hearing that. But but I have to remind people that when it came out, uh, you know, the biggest magazines like Metal Forces, they gave it an 8 out of 10. I, I think they reviewed 30 bands uh, that month. And if, the, if you w- they would have put them in a chart, we'd be like number 21 out of 30. <laughs> It's um I think age does a does an interesting thing to music and I guess it's it, there's a there's an element of nostalgia that comes from from music when people listen to it at particular times in their life and so when when you hear a you hear a song or an album that was from years ago then you you tend to depending on what it what you link it to it, you can look back on it more and more fondly as the years go by so I guess it's it's a bit of a perception thing that um that can work in favor for a lot of bands but it can it can go, go the other way for others. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't even give ample destruction away back then. I tried because our, our deal was only for the U S and the, the label was very cool. I mean, it always remind me, look, you know, you can sell it to Europe and, you know, maybe you guys can get some money and I, I couldn't even, Europe didn't even want it for free. 
back then. I mean, it was so weird. Oh, man. And if, um, and I'm sure like, you know, those copies that you couldn't even give away at the time, and I'm sure that um, people would be snapping them up now if uh, they were able to get their hands on them. Well, it was, it was more the license I was trying to sell and not, yeah. not the, yeah, I was trying to, you know, I would hit up neat records, metal, um, music for nations and, uh, all, all the various labels in Europe at the time and just, yeah, no interest. <laughs> Well, look, I mean, I guess, you know, once again, the silver lining of a situation, uh, at least, uh, you know, you're in a position now where people look back fondly and uh, and keep hassling you and or harassing you to, to do a, a part two. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, you never could do a part two. The, the funny thing is, I mean, I know every song on Ample Destruction inside and out. I mean, I could sit there and go, okay, if I do the riff this way and change this chord and do this, it would be... You know, I, I could make it a different enough to release. I mean, I would never do that. But even if I did that, I don't think people would say, oh, that sounds like Ample. I mean, no. you're just never going to get that sound again. That's it. It'll, it'll, you'll just never be able to. It's it's more than just the, the song itself. It's everything that's in context with it. And um, and a lot of bands have attempted to go back to their roots and release a, a, a part two of something and it's a rehashed, you know, version and it just, it never, it never strikes. It never, it never hits that chord. And, um, yeah. So I think, um, some things are best left in, in the legacy of, of the band. And, and that's where you guys were at the time and it's celebrated. And I think it's amazing that you've, you've got albums that, uh, that many people look back on and, uh, are quite fond of and talk in, in high regard and put it in high regard with a lot of other classic metal albums. So it's, it's a good, good position to be in. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wouldn't even try to duplicate Ample. I mean, I, it's, yeah, it's, it's just leave it the way it is. That was, uh, you know, a slice of time as to, you know, how thing, how we were back then and how we sounded. And yeah, I always think an album should always be, should always move a band forward. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. I will put, uh, some links on in the show notes for the episode for, uh, you know, Jag Pan's a bit of, of course, the Deviant Chord as well. So if people want to check out the latest album, they can go and uh, have a squiz of that. And um, I'll put all, yeah, all the links to yourself and the band in there as well. But um, thanks so much, Mark. I really appreciate it. It's great to oh, reconnect you, as well. Yeah, thank you, Andy. This was fun. Thanks, everyone. If you want to check out Jag Panzer's brand new album, The Deviant Chord, which came out in 2017, you can go to jagpanzer.com and click on the links to purchase the album. I'm sure most online metal retailers will have the album available for sale, um, so it shouldn't be too hard to find. They've got some pretty good distro happening. Um, if you want to learn more about Mark or Jag Panzer, I've got all the links over in the show notes over at andysocial.net. As with every episode of the Andy Social Podcast, it's actually, in my biased opinion, a fantastic resource to really get to know the guests that have been on this podcast and uh, find opportunities to further support them as well. So get on over to andysocial.net and check all of that out. As mentioned at the beginning of the episode, for anybody that's planning to go the upcoming Dragonland National Tour that's happening in September and wants one of those exclusive laminates that are signed by the band only 25 of them are available you can email Stu from stormrider touring by emailing stormriderfestival at live.com.au with a proof of purchase of your ticket and if there are any left then you can grab one from Stu. there are only 25 so they i expect them to go fairly quickly if you want to get tickets you can go to stormridertouring.com.au slash tickets and that's it folks that is the end of another episode thank you so much for the support 
I'm starting to batch record all of these well in advance. TY is going off on some gallivanting adventure through Europe for six weeks. So I have a lot of work to do. So this is being recorded a little bit in advance, um, but you can go and support the podcast by all the usual ways, leaving reviews all over the place. I do have patches now. They've been up for a few weeks as of the time this podcast goes to air. So if you want to grab a antisocial patch, you can go over to antisocial.net and click on the merchandise uh, or store link or buy stuff page or whatever it is. I can't remember. Um, you can go over there. There's t-shirts, there's USB passes, there's patches. Um, you can also go to lord.net.au, buy CDs, t-shirts, hoodies, patches as well. Um, there's heaps of ways to support me uh, and the podcast and the band as well. So anyway, enough, enough, enough. Until next week, guys, thank you very much for the support. Keep sharing these episodes around and thank you so much for the new listeners that are tuning in. I do waffle a bit in these outros, but um, hopefully you get something out of it. All right, folks, take care. And until next week, ta-ta. Larry. Larry, please.